My name is Dean, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. I oversee care and connections here at the church. And like Josh said, I have a unique role of having the opportunity to meet with many premarital and married couples. Uh, well, we are wrapping up a series uh, on marriage this week called In the Ring. And uh, the idea of this series has been that how can we fight for our spouse instead of with our spouse? So one of the things that I've been reporting to the pastoral team and leadership and Chad and those guys um, was the fact that the majority of the phone calls that are coming into the church are about marital issues. The calls that Dale and Leanne and myself and Josh and the other pastors are getting, the majority of those calls are about marital issues and about marital struggles and tension. And um, at some point um, in the marriage, most couples experience hurt, pain, and anger, and shame, and they begin to blame each other. These are normal feelings and emotions that come with marriage. And um, I have the opportunity to sit with these couples and hear about their stories and their experiences and what's going on. And then the one question I like to ask, ask these questions is, if I were to clap my hands and you know, things were to change, what would life look like? If we were able to just make things better, what would life look like? And usually the response is, what do you think it is? What do you think the response usually is? They don't know. I don't know. They look at me and I say, well, if I could just, if I could just snap my fingers and things could be fixed, how would life look like? And they go, I don't know. We've never thought about it. We've never taken the time to think about what we actually want because we've been fighting and there's been anger and there's been pain and there's been hurt. We've never thought through this. See, most adults in marriages have never thought through to how to handle the maze of fears, thoughts, and emotions that come with being in a fallen world. And most of us grew up in homes that taught inadequate or dysfunctional coping skills of how to deal with those things in a fallen world. And we can agree that um, if you're married here or thinking about marriage and, and being in a family, that uh, there's a great battle going on here between marriages. So today, I want to talk about how do we persevere in marriage when we don't get what we want? How do we persevere when we don't get what we want? So let's pray before we dive in. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that you are indeed making all things beautiful and that you are renewing all things to yourself. Lord, may we have hope in you today. May you bring to us the, to mind um, repentance that leads to salvation. And may we come to know that you indeed love us and that we are your beloved children. So Lord, may our minds be transformed. May our heart, may our spirit be transformed by your word. Lord, we're looking to you to grow. And we pray that this will honor and glorify you. And all God's people said, amen. So how do we persevere marriage when we don't get what we want? Well, first, we must recognize the distortion in the Garden of Eden. A few weeks ago, Chad talked in Genesis 3 that the first institution that was established wasn't the church, it was marriage and family. This is the first institution that God establishes. And he painted a picture of both Adam and Eve in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. He said that they were together and that they were with God and it was good. They were in perfect union with God, if you remember this from back in week one. Um, if you're, back in the garden here too, there was no stress in the garden here. They were enjoying each other with God. They would walk in the cool of the morning. They would talk with him. They would laugh with him. They were in perfect union with God. There was no stress in the garden at this time. So before the fall, men and women had distinct roles in the garden here. We know that Adam was created first and then Eve. We know that Eve was created as a helper to Adam. We know that they had specific roles in how they were to operate, that God spoke to Adam first 
after the fall, but the serpent came to Eve first to deceive her. You see, we had certain roles, but when Eve took the fruit and ate of it, and Adam ate of it too, it, and sin came into the world, it entered in distortion into these previous roles. It did not create new roles. It entered distortion into the previous roles we had. God introduced pain and distortion into the functions of our previous roles. So what does that mean? Well, God tells us. Let's look at Genesis 3.16, and he tells us here at the beginning. He says, to the women, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Anybody can amen to that? Yes, you guys know that who've given birth before. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then it says, your desire shall be to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This word desire here means to conquer. Eve had the distorted idea that she would want to usurp or um, lead or have authority over her husband. This word desire is the same word used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, when he's talking to Cain and Abel. He says, if you do not, if you do, not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This desire word here in Genesis 4 and 3 are the same word, meaning to want to overtake. So distortion has come into the world, and Eve now is suffering the, the pain of childbirth. Thank you, Eve. Right, women? And now she has this desire to go, you know what? I think I would like to rule this. I think I would like to be a decision maker. And so we see that this distortion is playing out here. But then if you look at the end of the verse here, and he shall rule over you. Adam's going to want to rule. No, Eve, I want to be in charge. And he will often use his authority in cruel and, and, and harsh and, 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 and frustrating ways to her. He won't be caring. It'll be absolute. It'll be more dict dictatorial. And what does he say to Adam here in 3.17, in Genesis 3.17? In verse 19 at the end there, it says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread to return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Adam, you're going to, first of all, you're going to die. You're no longer going to have eternal life here on earth. You're going to die. And two, you're going to have to work the land all the time to produce the food that you want to eat. And you're going to have to take care of your family. You see, God... What God did is he introduced tension into the marriage relationship as a result of the sin, as a result of their disobedience. And we are living in these distorted roles. Um, this is kind of a fun story. Like Susan and I, when we went on our honeymoon, um, I remember uh, when we actually went away and were away, um, I remember one night she woke up and she was a little frustrated. I said, hey, what's going on? Why are you frustrated? You didn't snuggle me all night long. I said, um, I was sleeping. What do you mean I didn't snuggle you all night long? She said, you turned down the air conditioning and it was so cold that I was shivering all night long. I said, I was hot. That's why I turned down the air. I honestly think in the garden here was this battle between hot and cold for men and women. <laughs> Is it not? Like we need dual climate control in the cars. We need heated blankets <laughs> versus air conditioning. This is a distortion that I think is playing out even today. But it's these little things that start to creep in that all of a sudden we have these issues. And a more serious note, if we look into the distortions, we see an aggressive man versus an aggressive woman. And I want to take a look at these things. When we are into our distorted roles, an aggressive man can be selfish, harsh, domineering, abusive, and cruel. That's why in the New Testament, they talk so strongly about to live with your wife in an understanding way and not to be harsh with her because why? Men are prone to this. Right, men? Yeah, no, now? 
Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a man to that. Yes, we men are prone to these things. And that's why the Old New Testament does say that we need to be not harsh with our wives. And an aggressive woman is what? Rebellious, disrespectful, or resentful, and competitive. Well, I want to compete with him. I want to show him that I can do this too, and I need to rule and be... These are issues in the distortion that happen. But on the flip side of this, what happens when we have a passive man and a passive woman? A passive man looks like, going to come up here, it looks like a passive man is going to look like an unengaged in, unengaged in marriage. He's going to look unengaged in the family, like really not being present, absent physically. How many men at times decide, you know what, I'm just going to stay a little longer at work. I really don't want to go home. Or, you know what, I'm going to work six days a week instead of, you know, five days a week. There's lack of leadership here. Obviously, in the garden, Adam had a lack of leadership here. He just kind of sat back and went, I'm just going to watch what happens here. I'm not going to step in and do something. There's lack of it. Or there's no decision-making at home. One of the biggest complaints I hear and that I see that's happening is that husband and wives are not in the Word together and they're not praying together. If you remember back what Chad challenged us in week one, he gave us a 30-day prayer challenge to say, hey, we got to pray with our wives and pray with our husbands so that we can invest and have the presence of God. So I see that a lot of times the passive men doesn't want to pray or read together, and he leads that up to this wife. A passive woman can be entirely passive, unwilling to speak and say, hey, you know what, husband? Maybe, that, maybe we shouldn't do it this way. Maybe this isn't the way life should look. Or unwilling to point out the wrong that they are doing. You see, these are the roles that have the tension that has been introduced into the marriage. See, before the fall, like I said, they had no stress. God was the leader. And Adam now has to lead a woman who's an independent thinker, a free thinker, and has an opinion of her own and wants to do certain things her own way. And then Adam wanted to blame Eve. And men really need to be the spiritual leaders of the home. The aggressive man isn't understanding. We need to be loving towards our wives. We need to be gentle and kind and understanding to them. You see, when the devil begins to scheme, he goes after what? Our emotions, our thoughts, our insecurities, our doubts, and our fears. He begins to erode away at us first personally, right? He begins to make us doubt and fear and have funny emotions that we don't know how to express. He wants to distort the relationship so that we act in these ways. So we must become aware that we are prone to these distorted roles. I want you to become aware that your spouse is fighting this battle and fighting this flesh every day that we are prone to wander toward these things. Lord, we feel it. We're prone to wander. And our spouse is battling these things every day. So we need to have compassion to know that the devil is scheming against your spouse to be prone to act this way and that there is a battle going on here. So how do we persevere in marriage when we don't get what we want? Well, we must recognize the distortion in Eden, and we also must recognize the desires of the flesh. We know from Ephesians chapter 5, he gives great instructions to husbands and wives. And I encourage you guys, when you guys go home, to read that for your homework. He gives absolute instructions on how the husband is supposed to act and how the wife is supposed to act as well. He also goes on in Ephesians 5 to talk about how we are to parent our children, about bond and maidservants. And then in Ephesians 6, what does he tell us to do in Ephesians 6? What does he tell us to do? Put on the armor of God. Why do we need to put on the armor of God? Let's look at Ephesians verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against what? The devil's schemes. For our struggle is not 
against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When we're in the ring, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against the schemes of the devil. He wants to disrupt the family unit by distorting your role so that you guys are disrupted and he can win the day by destroying the family. You see, in Ephesians it says we need to put on the armor, what? Every day because there's what? Flaming arrows coming at us that are looking to disrupt this constantly to tempt us, to pull us away from our rightful roles that we have in marriage. The devil wants to throw us into chaos. I know that some of you are saying, man, if you only knew how things were really behind closed doors. Things have gotten really bad. And this is the case. It's not his fault. It's not her fault. The devil is scheming to distort your roles and to cause this tension in your marriage. When these lies begin to permeate our lives, our coping skills are inadequate and dysfunctional as we begin to respond in flesh to the sin. I just want to hear from you guys a little bit. What are some ways that when we're in tension and we're in in, 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 in maybe strife with our spouse, what are some ways that we see the flesh play out? What are some things that we do? You guys can just call them out. Addiction, yeah. We go to drinking, drugs, alcohol. That's a good one. What else do we do? Cheating, yeah. Sexual immorality, cheat, commit adultery, right? This isn't working. I'm frustrated. I'll find somebody new to go be with and maybe things will be better. What else do we do? We push blame, yeah. I heard blame. I also heard lying. Yeah, there's a lot of lying that goes on that happens here too. I don't want to tell the truth. I don't want to reveal my vulnerable heart, so I'm going to tell lies and, and hide things. What else do we do? Say, what's it again? Silent treatment, right? Right? I'm just not going to talk about it. I'm just going to go out in the garage or go mow the lawn or I'm just not going to deal with this. You guys are laughing because you know exactly what that is, right? You know, when you come home and your wife's just like this, and you're like, oh, okay, something happened here. He's not talking. What else do we do? Anything else that we do? How about yelling? We yell at each other, right? Anybody yell in their marriages at each other? Right, there's a lot of yelling. I've never yet to experience yelling at each other where it works and somebody says, oh yeah, you know what? You're right. I, I'm sort of wrong. Thank you, right? Usually what happens is yelling begins and it goes nowhere. But these are the things that happen. What? Yelling, exclamation point. But Galatians 5, I want... I want I think that's Melissa up there doing that. But I want you guys to pay attention to Galatians 5 because in our distorted roles, we have tendency to run to these types of things. But Galatians 5 tells us exactly what coping mechanisms we use when we're in the flesh. Let's look at Galatians 5. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now listen to this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. And we talked about some of these. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, faction, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. As I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. As you look at this list, these are all the issues that we're dealing with when the married couples come in. They're fighting. 
They don't have proper uh, 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 coping mechanisms. And so the outlet, when they're in the flesh, becomes one of these things. And we talked about them. It's easier to go and find somebody else. It's easier to drink from a bottle or take drugs. It's easier to blame and to fight or to avoid. And then Galatians 5 is talking about the dysfunctions that we run to. I want you to take a second and think, which one do you run to when you're in a place when there is tension and stress? When you're in your flesh, which we all at times are, which one do you run to? We need to start becoming aware of our heart and what is in our heart. Some of us so badly want to avoid what is going on in our heart that we just pretend that it's not even there and we continue to do the same things every day and act out in the flesh. You see, there is a great stress when we enter marriage between the ideals of expectation up here and raw reality. So we got raw reality of how things are, and then we got these ideals and expectations. We just got done uh, with a, a premarital class of about 20 young couples that want to get married, which is so cool to see. And um, if we're honest, most of you probably didn't take premarital classes before you got married, right? And so we offer premarital classes so we can start to help couples deal with things that they are maybe not aware of or things they're not dealing with. So in this assessment, it's called Prepare and Enrich, and uh, it helps through a wide range of things like conflict resolution and leisure activities and sex and conflict resolution and communication. They start to answer questions, and they see how they answer those questions, and we can begin to have conversations that uh, normally couples don't have before they get married. One of the funniest parts about expectations that I love about uh, these tests is that most all these couples, these newly, married, these newly uh, engaged couples, uh, have this section here called the idealistic distortion items. And they always answer the same way, that they strongly agree with these questions. And I want you to listen to these questions. Every new thing I've learned about my partner has pleased me. Most all couples say, strongly agree. <laughs> I have never regretted my relationship with my partner. Most newlyweds couples say, I strongly agree. It gets better. My partner always gives me the love and affection I need. How many of you married couples feel that way, right? <laughs> My partner and I understand each other completely. My partner completely understands and sympathizes with my every mood. Does your partner do that for you? My partner has all the qualities I've ever wanted in a mate. These couples answer, strongly agree on all these areas. See, there's a distortion that happens when we're newly married and we're not seeking the true heart of that. We all have this battle that we are fighting. We are all in this battle. This is, we're, there's distorted thinking. They're young, they're in love, they're attracted to each other, and they're ready for their marriage bed and they can't wait to get to the altar. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong here, Right? So they, they've had inadequate or dysfunctional coping skills. They really don't know how to share their vulnerable heart. And then they're going to stand before a body of people and take a marriage covenant that says what? Till death do us? They have no idea what that means. They have no idea the repercussions of what they're getting into. And then we soon recognize that the expectations are not met. We are prone to reject, deny, and avoid reality. What happens when our expectations don't meet reality? What happens when our expectations are not met and reality comes in? We get angry, we get frustrated, we get disappointed, we start to blame, and we start to hurt each other because we thought this, and the reality is that we live here, and there's issues here. We experience hurt, pain, and confusion. Um, I think it's interesting that as children, 
We learn to navigate those uh, emotions on our own. Most families have little ability to deal with feelings. If you recall back, maybe you grew up in a home that was able to deal with feelings. Most of the time when the couples come in, they have little to do with understanding how to work out their feelings. Most of the time we heard things like, oh, just figure it out. Or you know what, get over it. Or life is tough. Or you got material things to soothe you when you had emotional issues and you were struggling. But we learned coping skills by watching our parents. So think back to your parents. They had certain coping skills that they did. Can you remember how they handled things? Can you remember how your dad and mom handled things when they were in conflict and they were frustrated? If you're a parent here, ask your children. They probably know better than you do how you would cope with tension and frustration. They would probably understand your patterns of, hey, mom went in the kitchen and didn't talk to anybody and she would be unavailable and disconnected or dad would go mow the lawn and nothing would happen and, or dad would come in and there would be a big argument match for about 10 minutes and then there would be silence. We all have learned certain coping mechanisms on how to deal with our spouses. This is a normal part of our growing up. Children can identify the, scoping, the coping skills or the dance, I like to call it, within our home when there's tension. You know, my wife sometimes, you know, talks about how when she grew up, she grew up with the idea of being performance-based. The harder I work, the more attention I get, right? What happens if you don't work hard enough or you feel like she failed? Well, she didn't feel worthy. She didn't feel like she was worthy of love. So what she do? I have to work harder. These are the things we begin to learn about ourselves in childhood is we got to figure out how we fit into the scheme of our emotions and our coping skills. One of the things that we've been working on uh, with Wayne and Gail Douglas is we've been working to train marriage mentors. Um, We want to train other people to help these young couples grow in their marriage. We, We understand that these young couples need an older couple to walk alongside them and help them through the marriage process. Not through the marriage process, the premarital process, but through the marriage and then thereafter. So if you want to be a marriage mentor, I'd love to talk with you about it if you want to help these young couples. But one of the things that Wayne and Gail brought to our attention was this book, um, by this couple who was on Focus on the Family. It's called How We Love. And what they're dealing with here in How We Love is they're dealing with our attachment theories and how we learn to love in our childhood. So we all learn how to love in certain ways. And this is not a label. This is not someone that's saying this is who you are. These are things that are tendencies that we do when there's stress and conflict within our marriage of how we relate and love to each other. So uh, if you go to this website, you can also go to cvconline.org backslash in the ring. There is a love style quiz on there that you can take that gives us an idea of of five different things, whether you were a vacillator, an avoider, a pleaser, a victim, or a controller. And these are some areas that we can become self-aware about who we are and how we act sometimes when there's tension in our marriage. So I'm giving you guys a chance to go on that website, do that with your spouse, and start to have some conversations that allow you to talk about how you learned how to love, because I'm pretty much sure that this is playing out in your marriage as well. So you go to that as well. Also this summer, we are doing a seven-week study called How We Love, and this is going to have an opportunity for you as couples and even as single people to understand how you love. So this seven-week series is going to be offered on Wednesday nights. It's going to be offered on Sunday mornings and Wednesday morning as well. So it's so important that you guys jump into a life group. There are group connect tables out there, and I encourage you guys to get into one of these groups and, and get plugged in. So, so we know that there is this, the, the distortion in the Garden of Eden. We know that we have to must recognize the desires of our flesh. And we also, last here, must recognize the covenant of marriage here. I want to look in Malachi chapter 2. 
Uh, the book of Malachi is becoming one of my favorite books that I've been reading lately um, because it's the last book of the Old Testament, and then it goes silent for about 400 years, but it's also prophesizing about Jesus Christ coming. The interesting thing about Malachi is that you could look at our church today, and it's very similar to what they were experiencing back in the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, uh, he is sent for God because they have been disobedient, and they have been uh, perverting what God has called them to do. Uh, they are in back, they're back in the area of Judah. They have rebuilt the temple. They are under Persian rule, and they are complaining to God. Matter of fact, they're exhausted by God and questioning whether God even loves them. Have you guys ever felt that? Does God even love them? That's why right here we so strongly want people to understand that they are a beloved child. Because here Israelites going, I don't know if God really cares. In Michael 1, 2, people were, were, were frustrated that they found themselves in unfortunate, unfortunate circumstances and they refused to account for their own sinful deeds. The priests were perverting the altars there. Um, men were marrying pagan wives and, and men were divorcing their Israelite wives for other pagan women. And uh, one of the things that the priests were doing is they weren't giving their best sacrifice. They were kind of lethargic. Instead of giving the best calf, they were giving the, the one that wasn't so good and, and giving that to God saying, hey, let's not give this nice, big, beautiful one with all of them. Let's give this one here that doesn't look so good. That's good enough for you, God. And God's going, why are you doing this? Have I not rescued you? Have I not saved you? Don't you know your history? So there is an apathy here in the church here in Malachi's day. I think we can relate to that, that there is an apathy in today's church as well. And here, Malachi is also then addressing in Malachi chapter 2 the corruption of marriage here. God's frustrated here in Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. And what he says is, And this second thing you do, you cover the altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because you no longer regard the offering or accept it with favor from your hand. But you say, Why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and your wife or the youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of a spirit in their union? God's upset here. And they're crying out to him saying, well, where are you, God? Why aren't you doing something? I think we can all identify with that in our lives. You know, there's lots of times where we wake up and say, I, where is God? I, I just feel like he's abandoned me. And so I, I don't feel like he, he's there anymore for me. And we begin to shake our fist at him. And we begin to ask, why aren't you doing something, Lord? You've abandoned me. And then when that happens, this distortion comes in. Our flesh starts to come in. And what happens to us is we start to become entitled, right? Well, if God, if you're not going to take care of me, if I'm, I'm going to come to your altars and you're not going to do anything, then I'm going to free to do whatever I want, Right? Because you haven't taken care of me, Lord. And the Lord is furious because he is pointing the finger back at them saying, it's not me who has changed. I just want to tell you, the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, they never change. They are the same today, tomorrow, and forevermore. He's not moved. So who's moved? We've moved. We've moved and we've disobeyed God from what he's called us to do. See, last Sunday, 12 years ago, Susan and I stood before a pastor in a congregation that took vows. Do you guys remember your wedding day when you took those vows? I took wedding vows that said, I will comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, keeping to her as long as we both shall live. At that moment, I made a covenant with God. All people who get married make a covenant before God. I don't care if you're a Christian or an unbeliever. We make a covenant with God that says, I am going to take care of this woman. And I make a covenant. I'm saying to God, because of you, Lord, 
I'm going to do these things for Susan. I don't make a covenant this way. I don't make this a contractual covenant with her to say, hey, Susan, if you perform well for me, if you make me happy, if you do everything I want, if you don't frustrate me, if you do, I will stay with you then because those contracts are easily broken. Look at the distortion that came in. It happened to Adam and Eve. That was broken. But when I make a covenant with God, a covenant is an agreement that brings us into relationship and a commitment with God and his people. And so when I make a covenant with God, I say, God, I'm going to keep my covenant to you because your spirit was a portion of that union. Susan stood there. I stood there. God came in and made us one. A portion of his spirit lives with us in marriage. What God has brought together, what does it say? Let no man separate. You can't separate this. God is saying you cannot separate this. But these people here in Malachi were saying, you know what? You're not loving us. We're, you're, we're going to give you the, the, the least of what we, we're going to give you the least of our sacrifices. We're going we're to marry pagan women. We're going to pervert the, the, the church. We don't care anymore, God, because God, you have not shown. Begin to blame him. And I think we can identify that, that we begin to blame God when we don't feel like we're getting what we want. And that is a very hard place to be in and takes lots of repentance for those things. I think we tend to feel entitled, like I said. We look at God and blame him for our problems instead of looking in the mirror. God is angry, and he's pointing his finger back at us. He's pointing at us. He's saying, listen, I haven't moved. But the distortion has caused you guys to fight, and, and you're fighting and not seeking me. You're not giving me your best, and you're being disobedient to my word, what I've told you to do. And when, we, when most couples come into my office... The fact of the matter is, is they are not reading their Bible and they don't pray together. So when you don't read your Bible, you can't know what God has for us. And listen, when we are obedient, blessing follows. When we're disobedient, there is a disconnection. There is a barrier that happens that when we are disconnected and sinful towards God. And this is the issue that these guys are facing here. God is at work in our lives. He will not let us fail. We need to let him be at work with us. We need to allow to be vulnerable. We need to allow to him to grant us repentance and be seen for who we really are. Malachi 2 goes on to say this, and what was the one thing God seeking? Godly offspring. So we know that marriage is meant to produce godly offspring. So guard yourself in the spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in the spirit and do not be faithless. So there is consequences that come with divorce that affect the whole community. When an Israelite man would divorce his wife, this would leave her destitute. She would have no covering. She would have no food. She would have no money. He would basically, he would kick her out, and this would be like an act of violence against her. But if we look into today's society, it's the same thing. When we have divorce, it affects everybody in the family. It affects the people who are married. It affects their extended family. It affects the children, whether they're young or they're old. It affects everything. It creates violence within the home. It's not what God intended for our marriages to be. Now, let me step back for a minute here. And Joe talked about this two weeks ago. There are some marriages that are in abusive situations where there's uh, physical abuse, there's uh, addiction and, and serious issues going on. We are not saying that you need to stay in there and suck it up and take the abuse. We're saying, come talk with us, go talk with a counselor, look at our blog at cvconline.org, and there is some help that you guys can get there. 
And we just want to make aware that there is some situations where you need to get help and not just. But what I'm talking about today is the couples who are fighting and are just tired of each other. I want to come here today and I want to pull you back from that edge. And I want you guys to look at the word of God. And I want you guys to begin to put your faith and trust in God. That when we're obedient to him, he will make our path straight. Amen? That we need him to do that. And here, that when we do that, what kills me the most is when I see little kids and their parents fighting, and I keep telling them, I say, you see that little kid there? They are going to experience the most pain out of all this. Even children in their 20s and 30s who have parents who get divorced, because some people say, hey, let's just wait till the kids get older, experience the same kind of pain. It's painful. The stability of the home is gone. Mom and dad are separate. I have to choose. I have to take sides. There's arguing. There's bickering. Now, you might be a person in this room who goes, hey, listen, I was divorced. I, I, I made a mistake and got divorced, or I didn't know any better and I got divorced. God has forgiveness for every one of us. It's not a death sentence. It's not a place where you are now have to be, have a scarlet D across your chest. God has forgiveness. Stay married to that current spouse and be faithful to them. But knowing that, and if you probably talk to anyone who's been divorced, they know the consequences that come with that. They know the painfulness that comes with being divorced there. So we must recognize that this can be a spiritual act of violence when we do it. It disrupts the whole community. Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred uh, Marriage, uh, says this, How can I tell my children that God's promise of reconciliation is secure when they see my own promise doesn't mean a thing? When we begin to share the gospel of God, if one day I were to tell my children, hey, I left your mom because we can't reconcile and, and it's just too frustrating and I want to go have something better. I want to gratify that my flesh. How do I tell them, but hey, God is good. He's a God of reconciliation and yet I failed to show and model that for them. We need to model that for our homes. Joe talked about that two weeks ago, that when our marriages model Christ, it is a great representation to the world how, how Jesus Christ loves the world. So in closing here, um, we want to wrap up this series by remembering what we said throughout the, the weeks, that God's presence helps our marriage to survive and thrive. Are you guys praying together? Read the word together and talk about the word because the word is going to be a lamp unto our feet. It's going to teach us. It's going to grow us. It's going to make our path straight. So spend time together in the word. Christians need to know that what God's love is like. We need to be passionate. We need to understand God's passionate love for us so we can passionately love our spouse, is what Chad talked about this week. And today I'm talking about how do we preserve our, persevere in our marriage when we don't get what we want. We need to become willing to recognize and examine our own hearts. If you look at the New Testament, there's many times where it says, examine your heart. Allow the Holy Spirit to stir and meddle in your heart that you can understand your fears, your, your, your thoughts, and your emotions. And then we need to be able to have, deal with them in healthy ways. And, and when we look at that, we look at Galatians 5, we saw the unhealthy ways to deal with them, but then at the end of Galatians 5, it talks about how we are to love and how to live by the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to move here. One of my good friends always says, he's a great counselor, he says, we need the Holy Spirit to move, and without him, we are powerless. We're powerless without the Spirit to move in our lives. God would love to fix the situation, the circumstances in our lives. He loves us. He loves us. But we have to come to a place of repentance. If you don't know Christ today, I would encourage you to ask God to grant you repentance that leads to salvation. If you're in a marriage that's struggling, cry out to God that he may see your true heart and that you may no longer deny the emotions and the issues that you're struggling with, but you can come to him in vulnerability. Remember in the scriptures that everything is laid bare before him. He already knows. 
but he wants us to come to his throne. He wants to come to the cross, and he wants us to offload our burden and say, I can't carry this around anymore because his yoke is light, and we need to give that to him. So repentance needs to happen. Maybe that needs to happen to your spouse, but it definitely needs to happen between you and Christ if we have distorted the relationship that we've had. Remember, we have new life in Christ. The distortion of Eden that we talked about does not have to distort our marriage because Christ's power over sin that happened in Eden. Christ has power over sin. He defeated the grave, right? He was crucified. His blood was shed that forever believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. So he, he put to death sin that happened in Eden. The desires of the flesh do not have control of us because Jesus died in the flesh to free us from the grip of sin. We can persevere in the covenant of marriage because God is present through his Holy Spirit in our marriages. Just as God would never forsake his bride, the church, we must not forsake our spouse either. And we have the power not only to persevere, but to flourish in every difficult situation because of Jesus Christ. Come. Come to Christ. He is there with open arms. It's not too late. As a matter of fact, it's never too late to come to Christ. And I want to close with looking at Ephesians 4 because this may be good for you guys to put the scripture to your mind. In Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 22, it says, this is the things that we are to do. It says, assuming that you've heard about him, what you just heard about Jesus Christ, that he was crucified, he died for our sins, and that whoever comes to him will not perish but have eternal life. So we were taught about him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self, the distorted self, the sinful self, the self that's driven by the desires of the flesh, which belong to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And what are we to do? We are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self centered, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May that be a verse you guys commit to your memory today because this is the way that we can thrive in our marriages. We need Christ at the center. We need to put off the old self and we need to be renewed in our spirit and mind. So remember, we need to recognize that there's distortion in the Garden of Eden. We need to recognize that there is uh, desires of our flesh, and we need to recognize um, the marriage covenant that we've made before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we come come to you because uh, oftentimes we feel stuck and feel like there is no road or dead. There's just a dead end. There's nowhere to go. But Lord, you are always there to receive us just as we are. And Lord, I pray that this group of people would come just as they are. We are broken. We have dysfunctional and corrupt ways of dealing with our tension in our marriage. Lord, if we have been running to sin in Galatians 5, if we're running to these things, Lord, we come to you in repentance and asking that there needs to be a better way. So we come to you in repentance, ask that you would grant us repentance that leads to salvation. And Lord, may we have life in the spirit. May we not feel like these, the marriages are, are, have no place to go. May we feel that you have hope in you because you have a plan for us because we made a covenant to you, not to our spouses. We made a covenant to you that says, I will take care of her until death do us part. Give us the strength. Renew our minds to do that so. And may we be created after the likeness of you, Lord. May we be true in righteousness and holiness. Lord, we need you. So we welcome you to do a great work within our body here at CVC that our marriages can reflect um, the love that you have for us. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen.